Have you ever had a friend who is super needy? Whenever they come to you, they just want something from you. Um, that can be very exhausting to have a friend like that. And as I'm reading the Psalms, I kind of feel like in terms of coming to God, the psalmist sometimes is like that. He's the, he's the person who's always in need, always desperate. But in this case, it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to come to God with your desperate needs. And in fact, there's no one else that you can go to who can actually fix your situation comprehensively. And so the, the psalmist is going again and again, and this is one of those psalms, Psalm 6, one of those psalms where we see that desperation of the psalmist, where he's asking for God to act, and, and David is turning to God, and it's a, it's a very a passionate and powerful psalm. And this is a psalm where we see that God is not acting, and the psalmist is, is waiting on him and asking for him and asking the question, how long? Oh God, are you going to take? How long is this going to take before you act? So I know for me, I'm a, I'm a person who I feel, at least at this point in my life, pretty competent. I, I like to be able to get things done. And as long as I can do something or control something in my life, it's easy for me to feel like I'm in control, right? But one of the hardest things in the world is to wait, to wait on God, to not be able to fix a situation, to feel helpless. And so this psalm reminds us of that. If you're in this kind of situation right now, it'll be so encouraging. And if you're not, if you're not feeling helpless right now, um, you you should to some degree because um, we need God, we depend on God. And so this reminds us of that desperation that we all have. So this psalm was later uh, incorporated into Ash Wednesday in the Lent season as one of the the seven penitential psalms of the early church. So while it may not be obvious to you when you first read it why this would be a penitential or like a a repentance psalm, because it doesn't necessarily directly speak of sin, uh, I think there is some connection there. There's a reason for that, and there may be a, a repentance from sin that's in view here in this passage. So let's get into it, first of all, with the heading. So it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. So again, there's all, there's all these terms in these headings that are difficult for us. We don't know, uh, <coughs> excuse me, we don't know necessarily where they come from, what they mean. Sheminith is probably a musical term. Maybe it's an instrument, but um, that's, that's kind of the best guess that we have. But in terms of the actual structure of the psalm, we see a few different movements in the psalm. And the first one is we see in verses 1 through 5, we see the psalmist seeking God's grace. So 6, 1 through 5, seeking God's grace. Look at verse 1. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, this opening is very interesting because Psalm 38 opens with the exact same words, in Psalm 38, the, the psalmist is focused on his sin. He's asking God to be gracious to him and to forgive him and cleanse him of his sin. So <clears throat> while it's not mentioned here specifically, this psalm may have the same focus. It may be that David is actually asking for God to forgive him because he is troubled by his own sin. And so he's asking for God to act on his behalf. He's saying, don't rebuke me. So it seems to be implied that he is in some sense, deserving of that, and that he's deserving of God's wrath. But he's asking for God to be gracious. Now, that term rebuke is actually a legal term. It's, an, it's talking about an argumentation where someone is proven wrong. So he's asking for God not to give his judgment or discipline to him. In verse 2, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones 
are troubled. So the verbs here are interesting. He says, first, be gracious to me, O Lord. And then he says, heal me. And so these two terms are parallel with each other in the psalm, but they seem very different, right? Healing would speak to typically a physical healing, whereas getting God's grace is something that seems more spiritual. But it seems like these are paralleled here because our spiritual condition does often have an effect on our physical condition. So he says, be gracious to me for I am languishing, or the idea there is I am faint. He's like a, a withering plant. He can't survive. He can't, he can't go on. And we see this kind, of, uh, this kind of language about the spiritual condition affecting the physical condition in other psalms. The first one that came to mind for me was Psalm 32, which speaks uh, in this way. It's, he says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So we see the same, the words of, of you know, the bones being troubled, the, them being withered up or dried up. And so this seems to be a similar kind of idea. And in Psalm 32, he's asking for God's grace because of his sin. He's asking for God to forgive him. So that's where we get the idea that this is, could be a penitential psalm. And then he says, in verse two, that his bones are troubled. And then in verse three, he also says, my soul is greatly troubled. Now that word troubled speaks of the the pain or the agony of terror. He's afraid, he's in pain. And in verse three, we see that he's greatly troubled. This is very severe. So he has this suffocating fear. And in verse two, it was his bones that were troubled. So it was sort of his deepest physical uh, being, but here it's his soul that is troubled. So this, presumably sin that he's dealing with is affecting him inside and outside. It's affecting the totality of who he is. And so as he's speaking to God, he cuts off his own sentence, right? He says, but you, O Lord, how long? How long? He just sort of cuts his own sentence off and he says, God, I I want you to act. You're not acting. Why not? Why are you not acting on my behalf? What do we do? In other words, when God doesn't act like we want him to act. So we see some of the answers. So he says in verse four, he says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. So that idea of turning is return, right? So God seems to have abandoned him and he's asking for God to to come back and to do good to him. The idea of deliverance there is is, um, that something has been torn out. So in, in Leviticus 14, verses 40 to 43, we hear this word deliver used of a stone in a building that is contaminated. It's got, you know, maybe, for example, some sort of toxic mold, and it's plucked out of the wall. It's taken out of the wall. So in this case, when he says deliver my life, he's saying take me out, snatch me out, remove me from danger. Take me out of this dangerous situation. And then he goes on to talk about how in verse five, in death there's no remembrance of you, and in Sheol, who will give you praise? Now, Sheol, it, that may not be a term that you're, you really understand or are familiar with. It's used a lot in the Old Testament. It's used a lot in the Psalms as well. So it, it helps to understand what that term is talking about. What is Sheol? Well, Sheol, um, it, it simply just means the grave. That's kind of the most basic way to understand it. So it speaks about kind of this realm of death. It's, it's a you know, almost a personification of death, but it really refers to just the grave. 
So he's saying, in death, I'm not going to be able to remember you, meaning not just kind of a general remembering, but like calling on God, calling God to mind, to praise and to worship him is sort of the idea. So remembering in the Bible is, in this kind of context, is not just knowing something happened, but calling it to mind in order to respond to it. And so he's saying, if I die, I'm not going to be able to worship you. If I'm in the grave, I'm not going to be able to give you praise. So he's, he's saying, I'm intentionally thinking of you, God, and who you are and praising you. And if I'm gone, I can't do that. So he's appealing to, to God's own interest, his glory, and saying, if I'm alive, I can continue to praise you for your goodness, which is, which is a good reminder for us of one of the fundamental reasons why we exist which is to praise God, right? So it, when we're gone, um, w- when we die, at least in terms of this sort of viewpoint uh, that there's no hope after death, if that were the case, then then that would cease, right? And so the psalmist is crying out to God saying, this is my purpose, I need you to, to rescue me. So we see the uh, first section there, verses one through five, and we see that idea that he's seeking God's grace. He's asking God to act on his behalf. And then in Psalm 6, verses 6 to 7, we see his sorrow. He, we see that he's swimming in tears. And these two verses give such a vivid description of sadness and suffering. So he first asks God to act on his behalf. And he's, he's saying to God, if I'm dead, I won't be able to praise you here on this earth. And then he's just very honest about his own mental, emotional state. He's in a great deal of suffering, and there's such a this vivid description here. He says in verse 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. So in verse 6, he the, the literal language there, he says, I flood my bed with tears. The literal language would be that he's his bed is swimming with his tears. That's such a, again, such a vivid description. His bed is swimming with his tears, but he's saying, I'm simply crying all the time. It's hard to stay. He's using this hyperbolic language to describe how he is crying and the state that he's in. In in verse seven, we see his eye wastes away and a clear eye in scripture was a a picture of health. So he doesn't have a clear eye. He has an eye that's wasting away. So he's this wasting eye points to sickness and decline. He needs God's help. So he's sick, and not only is he sick, but he has enemies who are against him. We see that that he talks about, my eyes grow weak because of all my foes. So he's in this condition of, of sin and sickness. Maybe the sickness has been caused by his sin in some, some way. And then he's also being attacked by people. Relational conflict while you're sick, while you're suffering, only furthers the pain that you're in. It only aggravates your condition, and it can often make your physical state worse. And so we just see such a stark description of his suffering. And I think this is important to understand because it's good to speak to God about our condition, just to be honest with God about the state that we're in, the suffering that we're enduring, because God wants to help. God wants to act on the behalf of his people. So we see the suffering that he has, that he's swimming in tears, and then verses 8 to 10, we see him rejoicing over his enemies. So like so many of the Psalms, this Psalm ends on a really high and triumphant note. 
So in verse 8, we see that tone change, right? He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. So he's not just that he's weeping for no cause. God actually hears and responds to the suffering of his people. And so he has confidence here, right? He speaks to these workers of evil, which are the enemies mentioned back in verse 7. And he wants to separate himself from the evil. So he's evil people. So he's saying, get away from me, go away from me, because God is going to act on my behalf. In verse 9, we see two different verbs here with, with different tenses. So he says, first, the Lord has heard my plea. That's a, something completed in the past. And then, if we if you translate it literally, the Lord will accept my prayer. So again, in, in ESV, it says the Lord accepts my prayer, but it should be translated with that future tense. So as he's looking to his past, he understands that God has heard him, that God knows of his suffering, that God cares. And because of that, he, he knows what the future is going to hold. Again, he doesn't know exactly how that's going to happen or when it's going to happen, but he knows that God will act on his behalf. So his suffering is not in vain. God is going to act. God is going to accept his prayer and deliver him from evil. And then he ends in verse 10. He says, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So twice you see the idea of shame or ashamed. So his enemies will be proven wrong and God's cause in his life will be vindicated. So it's just an interesting psalm. The, the emotion that's here, the strength of emotion, that there's confidence in spite of the situation that God's going to deliver. It's such an encouragement for us when we're in a situation where God is not acting on our behalf, which is going to be a lot of times in our life. So a couple of things, just practically speaking, that we can take from this, okay? The first thing I would say is don't wait until you're desperate to go to God. It's, it's, you don't have to wait until things are really, really bad to seek out God. But if you are desperate, then turn to God. I, I know because I understand that I should be going to God every day, that I shouldn't be neglecting prayer, that when tough times come up, I can almost feel guilty if I've been in a pattern of not praying enough and say, I can't go to God. I'm just going because of something I need. Well, that's silly, right? That's ridiculous. That's, and that's foolish even. Right, go to God all the time, but but I would say I would encourage you not to wait until you're desperate. But if you're desperate, go to Him. There are three different kinds of people, right? There's the wise person who goes to God all the time for every reason, for praises and for needs. There's the immature person who only goes to God in their time of desperate need, and then there's the fool who refuses to ever go to God. So which are you going to be? I'd much rather you be the immature person than the fool, but I want you to be the wise person who's always going to God. The second thing we see from this is that pain is in the world for a reason. The pain is here to rouse us out of our sin, to awaken us to the things that we are doing that are wrong and to help us turn to God. Pain is an incredible gift that will allow us to seek out the help of the great physician, the great healer. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Promise of Pain said, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
I love it. Of course, C.S. Lewis has this unique way of saying this, right? But pain is this megaphone. It's something you can't ignore that can rouse you from your complacency and your passivity to come to God. So when you're in pain, receive it as a blessing that God has given you to teach you more about him and to make you more like him, to show you the sin in your life, how destructive it is, and to call you out of it. Use it to remember that life isn't what it's supposed to be that there's suffering in the world because we were made for a better world and God wants us to long for that world. And so he uses pain to increase our desire for the future, for eternity with him. The third thing I would say, just in terms of practical word here, is don't forget how good you have it health-wise. And, and maybe this seems like a shallow thing to say. I don't think it is. Don't forget how good you have it. As we see a psalm that speaks in some regard about physical illness, don't forget that the average lifespan in the ancient Near East when there wasn't a war in ideal circumstances was about 40 years old. So the, the, the benefits that we have with the world we're in, the resources that we have, the lack of danger that we have, we are very, very blessed, right? Our greatest danger really in our world today is eating ourselves to death. That's like the greatest danger we have. So um, be thankful, be thankful for what you have and your health and praise God for it. The next thing I would say is that there's always hope for the Christian. There's always hope for the Christian because we not only have a God who cares about us, but we know exactly how God cared for us. Right? We have something better than what David did because we see Jesus who has come to rescue us. And so we know we can always look back to that event to say, this is where God's love for me was proved and I can rest on that. So there's always hope. Whatever you are suffering now, you know the end of the story. You know that God is going to vindicate you, um, not maybe not in this life, but in the end, when he redeems you, when he gives you his inheritance, when you have all things that you could ever possibly need. So there's always hope for a Christian. Don't ever forget that. So in your suffering, remember the good ending. And the last thing I would say is, if you are suffering only physically, be glad that you're not suffering spiritually. Martin Luther said, rightly to feel sin is the torture of all tortures. And sometimes I, I forget to, to praise God for this. When, I, when I'm sick or I'm suffering, I'm going through a hard time. Um, there may be many bad things that come our way, but the worst thing of all is to be carrying the weight of your own sin and to be guilty for sin. So if you can rejoice that God has forgiven you, that he's taken that burden, then remember that in the times that are darkest in your life.